good evening, and happy new years, everyone. I hope 2023 treated you well, and if it didn't, that's what the new year is all about. It's a time for change, a time for discovery, and a time to try new things, try to better your life in some small or substantial way. Let me know down in the comment section below uh, what your plans are for next year, or I suppose this year now. Any type of New Year resolutions, whether it be the normal ones that everyone always says, like, I'm going to work out more, I'm going to lose weight, <laughs> things like that. I don't really have any personally. I think I just want to be a little more consistent. I want to get back on schedule with things and um, just try a little harder at what I do here. I know you all appreciate it, and I appreciate you all for it, but I feel like I could be doing a little bit more. Let me know down in the comment section below what your plans for this year is, and um, let me know what you thought about the stories as well. Let's get into it. <clears throat> I hate New Year's Eve. Every year on this night, the anomaly comes back. It first appeared in the sewers of my hometown five years ago. The only hints we had of its existence were two dismembered teenagers and one young girl who'd been traumatized into a permanent silence. At the time, disturbing as the events were, it was hard for the police to justify spending resources on kids that had been deemed undesirables. The questions focused on what the three had been doing in the sewers on New Year's Eve, not on who or what had killed the two boys, and the terrified mute girl couldn't answer them in either case. We didn't have much to do in my town other than drink, so our debates at the bar went in circles before fading over the next few months. We were collectively just about to forget the whole thing when the next New Year's Eve rolled around. The night's celebrations were rowdy, sure, but slightly overshadowed. More than a few people had theorized there might be a serial killer who had chosen that night annually for his ritual. We all kept a nervous eye on the shadowed distances outside the reach of street lamps and porch lights. And just after midnight, screams echoed out from a back lot behind the back of the hardware store. A tremendous burst of drunk, angry, and protective men surged from the Main Street bars, myself among them. We amped up all night to potentially mass mob a serial killer, but none of us were prepared for what we saw. Four limbs, a torso, and a head lay scattered around the lot, but not even in pieces. Some tremendous force had sliced them to bits. Worse, the same mute girl from the year before sat huddled behind a dumpster, crying and covered in a sopping wave of blood. Harold, our oldest homeless man, had been murdered, and that girl had become their primary suspect. The police took her and brutally interrogated her. Our town was simultaneously silent and full of whispered gossip for the entire time. Nobody knew whether to feel bad for her or whether to demand she be... T 
Nobody knew whether to feel bad for her or whether to demand she be treated more fairly. If she had killed those people that way, she was totally insane. So I fought down my usual urge toward fairness and stood by while they continued hurting her. We all did. Apparently, after four days, she finally cracked and told them what she'd seen both New Year's Eves. We could only guess at this, though, because the chief of police left the station with a haggard look of suspicion and fear without a word. The other cops escorted the girl to the psych ward of our local hospital and left her there indefinitely. They looked for a hypothesized serial killer for a few months, but neither scene held any forensic evidence. They were forced to give up. Not that it mattered. The next New Year's Eve, they were all killed just after midnight. A veritable cyclone of gore and grated chunks exploded across Main Street. I was sitting in Roddy's pub with the other guys when the window suddenly went dark red with blood like rain. The thumps scared the living daylights out of us and we ran to the door when we realized all the windows were opaque. I... I can't describe the scene outside. Suffice it to say, the... Sewer drains nearly overflowed. Our entire police force, several doctors, and numerous patients from the psych ward were later pieced together out of the morass. Sitting dead center was the same girl, knees curled up, arms over her head, as foot-deep blood swirled past her. Yet again, she'd been the only survivor. Only this time... We knew we were not dealing with a serial killer. Something far worse was happening. The girl, of course, had more or less lost her mind. She was also still drugged up from the ward and told us everything in a stunned haze. I wish she hadn't. The nature of the anomaly was such that we could not speak to the media or ask for help from outside sources. We simply wouldn't be believed, and there'd be more questions than answers, getting us all in deeper trouble. Though the mess was horrendous, we cleaned up the street as best we could and gave them all good Christian burials. Those hours of picking up body parts with my numb garbage bag gloved hands in the cold light of New Year's Day rank among the second worst day of my life. We were all in it now. A town secret among the men. The anomaly was going to come back, and we had to be ready. Part of me hoped it wouldn't return, but the rest of me knew with a sick feeling that it would. It had been growing bolder each year, starting underground and then slowly moving into places that were increasingly public. If we didn't stop it, Lord knew where it would go next. Last New Year's, we sat waiting in our houses. There was no drinking, as we'd have to be sharp. There was no gathering, because it would find us. There was no last-minute goodbyes or phone calls. We didn't intend to die. It came between one blink and the next, just before midnight, and just as the poor girl had said. She was my first sight, 
This would be her fourth time through this nightmare. She didn't scream. She didn't move. She seemed completely resigned to her fate. Recovering from the blurry, odd feeling of being taken, I looked around at the others. There were the 43 men we'd expected, the girl, and several wives and children. My heart sank as I saw them. Someone had screwed up. Beyond our scattered group, strange ivory tiles radiated out to meet smooth alabaster walls that arced around us in an unbroken circle. The ceiling, just reachable by a jump, held the same tiled pattern. I took this in quickly, then focused on the anomaly at our center. It was as she'd said. Six thin black circles rotated on an axis to form the framework of a sphere shape. Each circle seemed to be made of impossibly thin material, like a fine wire honed into razor blade sharpness in every dimension. An ivory sphere hovered inside of it. Blank. There was very little delay for getting our bearings. The ivory sphere lit blue while people were still cussing and looking at each other. The girls screamed to make them pay attention, and we looked down at our feet. A large number of the semicircular tiles on the floor had turned blue. I touched one, and it rose about a foot up and turned green. Getting the idea, everyone else started running around and hitting the blue tiles, raising them up and turning them green while the sphere began humming louder. As it reached the crescendo, we realized that all the tiles had been activated, but we weren't sure if that was what we were supposed to do. Apparently it wasn't because the sphere reached a high note, went silent, and altered one of its surrounding black circles. The circle rotated until it was flat in the air, and then began expanding rapidly. People screamed, but we all ducked in time. We'd all seen what this thing had done to everyone else. We weren't about to get caught off guard. The worst injury was the removal of a small tuft of hair from old Benson's mop. We crouched, relieved, until the lights on the floor changed and the humming began rising again. All these factors and certain details of the room I can't relate to you told us the terrible truth. It was a puzzle, exactly as the girl had told us. A child's puzzle, built by someone or something so exotically different from us that we found it murderous rather than simple. There were no instructions, the same way we don't put instructions on, say, a plastic tower with several brightly colored concentric rings of different sizes. The child was simply expected to try different permutations and have fun with no danger involved, but our ringed tower toy would seem very different to, say, a creature lethally allergic to plastic. It might ask, why would anyone make this? What monsters would create such a torture device? And we asked those questions, too, as we failed to figure out the addition of red to the tiles. The second black circle around the sphere split into numerous vertical lines that began spiraling throughout the room. Mercifully, these were slow, and only a single hand was lost among the crowd. One of the wives screamed in pain, but her husband was there to bandage her stump, stem the bleeding, and grab her loose hand for possible reattachment. 
assuming we got out of this in time. The ceiling. The ceiling tiles were separate objects from the tiles below them. As the sphere began humming again, we all realized at the same time. Jumping up, we hit red tiles, which turned blue and lowered. Below, we hit green tiles, which rose further and turned back to blue. The new color, yellow, only turned white when struck. The men threw out numerous theories. They'd have something to do with primary colors. Were we supposed to make patterns? The two black waves had halted at the extremities of the circular room. Should we try to take advantage of the new small gaps in the sphere's defense and destroy it directly? Whatever we were doing wasn't working. The girl warned us that the deadly black energy lines could come back from the outer walls, so we all managed to duck as the first ring shot inward and rejoined the sphere's outer shell. We all thought we were getting somewhere. We all thought we could figure it out. Maybe we could have given it enough time, but... When we looked around for the fourth change, we... We saw nothing new. Mary Baker stepped out onto a white tile and it rose. It turned blue. The game hadn't been designed for us. There was only one chilling conclusion, something that not even the thrice-surviving girl had known. The puzzle involved colors we couldn't see. It hadn't been built for our eyes. Collective hysterical screaming drowned out everything else. Our plans and strategies suddenly seemed stupid and ill-fated. We literally had no way to win. Every single person in that strange otherworldly trap. They were going to die. Except there was one other catch. A sort of fail-safe. I suspected it was the way the girl had survived three times already, and I was certain she'd kept it to herself on purpose. It was why I'd brought a knife and a gun, both hidden in my clothes. None of us intended to die. But I intended to die the least. The game led out in the middle of deep back country woods. Initially, I thought that this meant the anomaly was simply moving on a straight line to nowhere. Later, I'd realize that it was actually halfway to the state capital. There was no gore explosion this time. The black lines of energy hadn't torn apart nearly as many victims as before. All the blood and organs and intestines were still in the dead, held mostly together by their empty vessels. As the only survivor, exhausted and covered in blood myself, I walked straight home and took a shower. My first thought was not to tell anyone. I could never explain the disappearance of all those people, and certainly not a clearing in the woods filled with a dozen of bodies. You see, though the anomaly was built as some sort of puzzle for a child from a species unlike anything we could imagine, it was designed to be a multiplayer competition. The game automatically ends when only one participant is left. kept this burden, this nightmare, trauma, and guilt to myself for an entire year. But tonight I speak. Maybe I've lost my mind. I did think I could live with this and keep the secret to myself, just as the girl thought she could. She only cracked once the first time and told Harold the homeless man. 
The police beat it out of her and sent her to an asylum. The cops, the doctors, and the other patients paid the price. We men heard it from her, and some of us told our wives and children, consigning them to death. That's another complication of being from a totally different culture than the anomaly. Just talking about it acts as an invitation to the yearly game. And we just don't know how to turn that invitation off. It might be as simple as a spoken phrase or a mental rejection in a particular manner unknown to us, or it might be something that requires organs or perceptions we don't have. In any case, this year, tonight, I speak because I have no idea what might happen if I'm the only player. I tell myself, we can figure out the puzzle if we have enough people, enough smart people, enough different people, that maybe someone has an inspiration, or maybe someone has eyes that can detect the unseen colors, but... But to tell the truth, I want as many people possible, because I'm scared. I'm scared, and I'm sorry. Happy New Year's. I'll see you at midnight. I took the picture of Jody Cowanthrope. You know the one. It was all over the papers when she went missing. Her pretty blonde ringlets and apple blossom cheeks followed you everywhere you went for the first two years, always hoping she'd turn up. When she was pronounced legally dead, her parents held a memorial service. It was my picture they used in place of a casket. No dead body to lay to rest, just memories and deadened hopes to fill the empty spaces. Of course, at the time, I didn't know I was taking her very last picture. I was an amateur photographer and I'd set up shop in the local mall for the day. Just a few lights and some backdrops. I didn't charge much because I was hoping to expand my portfolio and one day become a real professional photographer. I spent the day taking pictures of a few teenage girls, some kids, one or two adventurous mothers, and Jody, of course. I remember her most vividly of all. And not just because of her disappearance shortly afterwards. It was because she practically bounced into my arms, all bubbly joy and pink frills. I know most five-year-olds are probably like that, but with Jody it seemed different. I guess I'm not explaining it well. <laughs> I've kept my thoughts on this subject mostly to myself. I used to have this horrible feeling that her kidnapper must have felt the same way about her and that's why he chose her instead of someone else. Doesn't matter. The point is, shooting Jody was a joy. She did everything I told her exactly as I told her to do it. She was the perfect model. I spent almost an hour with her, and at the end of the session, her mother paid me double my rate just because she loved how happy my pictures made Jody. All in all, it was a successful day for me which is why I was not expecting the police to come knocking at my door two nights later. Unofficially, 
I was a person of interest. Being one of the last people Jody interacted with, I guess it makes sense that they suspect me, but it didn't take long for the cops to decide I had nothing to do with it. I had a solid alibi for the night of her disappearance, and my DNA wasn't found at the scene. Apparently there'd been a struggle in her bedroom, and they'd found some DNA that has never been identified. At any rate, they did come and ask questions, and wanted copies of all the pictures I'd taken of Jody, which I was happy to provide. They chose the best of the bunch, a cute picture of her sitting with crossed legs and a beaming smile to put into all the papers. And the rest, as they say, is history. They credited me with the picture. I thought that was kind of strange, to be honest, but it wasn't all bad. I have to admit, I got a lot of interest after that. Do you know how many people wanted to be photographed by me and were actually willing to pay? It was like I'd become some kind of morbid tourist attraction and people obsessed with mysteries and true crime stories. I sort of left a bad taste in my mouth working with those people, but they paid good money, and I figured it wasn't really hurting anybody. Better they come bother me than go after her parents, right? Of course, I also got some hate mail from people convinced that I'd murder her but those were few and far between. Eventually, the fervor around her disappearance died down, and I faded into obscurity. My photos got better, and I really did become a professional photographer, made enough money to get by and everything. Once in a while, I'd get a question about Jody. What was she like? Did I sense something was off about her? Did I have any idea that... Something terrible was about to happen. But it became increasingly rare as time went by. This year is the 10-year anniversary of Jody's disappearance. There was a big article in the paper for her. People on the streets were whispering about her. What do you think ever happened to Jody Callanthrope? She was on our collective minds as the most famous mystery to ever come out of our sleepy little suburb. I should have been expecting a resurgence of interest in my photograph, but I wasn't, and it came as a surprise when he came walking to my store. He looked to be in his mid-thirties, with thinning brown hair and pale skin. He was about my height, just under six feet, but he walked with a slouch that made him look smaller. He was wearing these old Coke bottle glasses and kept fidgeting with them as he talked. I, I I was wondering, are you James Winterstein? As in the James that took that picture of, uh, of Jody? I nodded and gestured for him to sit down in my little waiting room. Uh, yeah, that's me. What about it? I could tell he had questions, but he didn't seem to know where to start. I waited patiently while he gathered his wits. I was just wondering, how how did you, how did you manage to do it? A red flag went up in my mind. Did this guy think I'd kidnapped her? Of course he did. 
Just my luck. One of those delusional vigilantes had come to my shop to harass me. My voice came out harsher than I intended when I asked, What are you talking about? How did you manage to capture her spirit so well, eh? He asked in a rush, oblivious to my abrupt change in tone. I mean, every time I see it, that picture of her in the papers, I, I get goosebumps. Looks like I could reach out and touch her. Was there some kind of, I don't know, technique that you used? A special camera? What was it? I relaxed a little at that. His curiosity seemed genuine enough. I didn't do anything special, I said with a shrug. I just told her how to pose. She brought the life to the pictures all of our own. He nodded a little, looking wistful. Yeah, that sounds like Jody, all right. You knew her? I asked. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I was her next door neighbor for a few years. Jody used to play in my yard. Sweet little kid. Terrible what happened to her. I nodded, and we chit-chatted for a bit after that. Just as he was leaving, he asked, Do you think you could take some pictures for me if you have the time? Sure, I said. What do you want? If you give me your card, I can email you the details, he said. I gave him a business card and sent him on his way. Didn't think anything of it. Not until that night, when I got his email. The subject line was an address. In the body of the email, it simply said, If anyone can bring her back to life, it's you. Suddenly, my interaction from earlier in the day didn't seem so innocent. Like a new lens slipping over my eyes, I relived every moment of our conversation. And I didn't like what I was seeing, not one bit. I'm not in some kind of shitty B-horror movie, and I'm not stupid, so the first thing I did was call the police. 911, what's your emergency? Hi, uh, my name is James Winterstein, and I got a weird email, and I know how it sounds, but I... I think it's connected to the disappearance of Jody Callanthrope. The operator sounded bored as she answered. I'm sure I wasn't the first person to call about Jody. They probably had a lot of wackos over the years who thought they'd solved the mystery of Jody's disappearance. Can you tell me what's in the email, sir? Uh, well, it's from a guy who came into my photography studio this morning. I'm the guy who took Joey's picture, you know, the one that runs in the papers. And he came in asking me some questions about it. Just now he sent me an email with an address and told me that if anyone can bring her to life, it's me. The operator was quiet for a few moments and I had time to think about how painfully crazy I sounded. What was the address, sir? I repeated it to her. More silence. Sir, where are you now? Uh, I'm at home. Why? 
please stay where you are. We'll send an officer as soon as we can. Do not leave the house. Lock all doors and windows. What? Why? What? What's happened? Please remain calm, sir. Give me your address and we'll have someone out to you as soon as we can. I gave her my address and hung up the phone, frustrated and unsettled. For one fleeting moment, I considered getting into my car and checking out the address anyway, but immediately put it from my mind. I'm not some kind of hero. I knew better than to get involved in whatever the fuck was happening. Two hours later, an officer came by and insisted I come with him down to the police station where I sat down and was questioned by two other officers for about half an hour. At the end of it, one of the officers, Officer Elroy, took me aside and finally explained what was happening. Earlier this evening, we received a tip-off about Jody. Someone was claiming to have seen her around the address you gave us. The address belongs to a dilapidated cabin down in Woodred's Grove. When we arrived, we found her. My heart skipped a beat. You, you found Jody? She, she's alive? Officer Elroy gave me a sad look and I felt my heart sink. No, son, she's not. She's been dead at least three days now. We'll have to do a DNA test to confirm the identity of the body, but at this point, we have no reason to believe it's anyone other than Jody Callum the Rope. Shock numbed me to the core. You mean this whole time she's been here? In town all these years? He sighed. Most likely. It's more common than you might think. The man you saw earlier this evening, we think he's connected to her death and her kidnapping. We're going to do everything in our power to find him. If he's in contact with you again, we need you to contact us immediately. He wasn't there at this scene? He shook his head. The numbness left me and anger boiled in my chest. I want to see her, I said. He opened his mouth, probably to refuse me, but I insisted. I was one of the last people to see her alive. I just... I want to see her. Please. Eventually, he shut his mouth and nodded. I followed him to the morgue. Before her parents had seen her, or even before... I followed him to the morgue. Before her parents had seen her or even been informed of her likely discovery, they pulled down the sheet and I looked into the face of a girl I would have recognized anywhere, even after all these years. I could see where her rosy cheeks had faded, her charming smile had thinned into a permanent frown, her liveliness had drained into endless exhaustion. It was Jody. And then again, it wasn't. I stared at her for at least ten minutes. Then I turned around and left. The next few weeks were, to put it simply, a shit show. Jody's parents were, of course, devastated, and the entire town was in shock. 
my phone was ringing off the hook. More obsessive freaks wanting to ask me questions about Jody's pictures. I ignored the phone, closed down the shop, and sat in my room. I drank mostly and tried to forget about the world just to get away from it all for a little while. I did talk with Jody's mother a little. She'd kept in sporadic contact with me since Jody's disappearance, and I thought it sometimes made me uncomfortable. I couldn't find a way to shut her out. I always sort of felt like I owed it to her to be there for her, even though it wasn't my fault, and there's no way I could have prevented it. She asked me to come to the funeral, the real funeral. I kept trying to think of a polite way to decline, knowing I wouldn't be able to, knowing I'd end up suffering through it. Cops checked up on me once or twice, kept tabs on me to make sure that her kidnapper hadn't tried to contact me again. He didn't, of course. Not dumb enough, I guess. I went to the funeral, and I cried for a little girl that I never knew. I took some more time off work, but eventually opened up shop once more. Jody's parents sold the house and moved a few towns over can't say I blame them. Would you say if this had happened to you? Life went back to normal. At least as normal as it ever can be after something like that. But normal became a thing of the past this morning. Because this morning I opened my email like always. I skimmed the subject lines until I focused on one that had been sent in the late last night and paused. Written there, in black and white, was my very worst nightmare. I'm still waiting for those pictures. <laughs>